We'll be in Ecclesiastes, if you want to turn there. Um, if you're new, new to the Bible, new to the church, Ecclesiastes is a book that we don't really cover all too much, so it's on page um, 658. And if you are around the church and are familiar with it, you're wondering why in Advent season we're going to Ecclesiastes. Um, so Christmas time is here. Uh, the South Shore Plaza has no more parking spaces. And, um, you know, we're, we're ready to go, ready to roll um, on Christmas. So I think this sermon is going to be able to connect a few things for us. Um, so why don't, we, why don't we pray, and then we will uh, get into it. So let's pray. Lord God, we just praise you for who you are, for what you've done. We thank you for how you're working in this youth ministry, Lord. It is all for your glory that all these things are happening, that you're changing lives for the glory of your name, Lord. We love you. We praise you for that. We thank you for that. Lord, I pray that this morning that you would give our minds understanding, keep our hearts open and soft to your word. Lord, I pray in this time that you would uh, speak through me as as I preach your word. Pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight, O oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Lord, help us see the meaninglessness of life without you. Lord, I pray that you would help us to know you more in this time. Lord, I pray that forgiveness would wash over all of us. Lord, we love you. Help us love you more. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. So, as you know, Jeremy said, the sermon was part of a youth retreat, and uh, there were four messages on the book of Ecclesiastes, and the whole theme was, don't waste your life. And, um, you know, it was great. We had t-shirts made up for it, and gave out books by John Piper, and all this stuff. It was, it was a great time. And so, what you're going to hear is the first sermon repackaged uh, for this audience and for this setting. And so, this morning, we're going to ask the question... What is the meaning of life? It's a very important question for high schoolers to think about and for each one of us to think about. Um, and so let me just start with, with an interview that I heard recently. It was given by Tom Brady. Um, everybody's probably familiar with Tom Brady, you know, Pat's quarterback, you know, December is here, the playoffs are coming. Come on, let's get in season for it. Um, Christmas is great, football season is great too, so... Uh, you know, Tom Brady's here, and he's given this interview, and he's at the peak of his fame. This is a couple years ago. It was after they won their third Super Bowl championship. You know, he just started dating Giselle, um, you know, the supermodel. Um, you all know who that is. Don't, I'm not alone up here. You guys know who that is. Uh, so he just started dating Giselle. You know, he's at the peak of his fame and popularity. The Pats are having a great season. I think it was the year that they're going undefeated, I think. Um, And he gives this interview to 60 Minutes. And so this is what he says. He says, why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey, man, this is what it is. I've reached my goal, my dream. Me, I think, man, my God, there's got to be something more than this. What's the answer? I wish I knew. I wish I knew. So you have Tom Brady at the peak of his fame and popularity, asking the question, what's the meaning of life? Is this all there is? Is this all there is to life? And so in the Bible, there was a guy similar to Tom Brady 
who had, he had everything, this guy. He had power, he had money, he had women, he had wisdom, he had adoration. He had all possessions that you could imagine. He's living the dream. But you know what? He still wonders about what the purpose of life is. And his name is Solomon, who wrote the book of Ecclesiastes, which we're reading through. And so he came to conclude this, that a godless life is meaningless. And we see this in verse 1 of chapter 1 of Ecclesiastes, if you want to look there. Look at verse 1. It says, The words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. And so this verse introduces us to a couple things. It shows us who's writing this. You know, it's the words of the preacher or teacher. So it's Solomon. He's the wise one. He's, you know, essentially lived a full life. You know, he has a lot of experience, so he can speak to you through this. You know, he's the son of David, the king of Israel. So he's the king of a powerful, wealthy, and prosperous nation. And Solomon has more wealth, power, and influence than we could ever have or ever imagine. And so he, ha- he also has more education and more wisdom than we could ever dream of. I mean, this guy is like the commercials say, he's the most interesting man in the universe. He's, he's that guy. And uh, look at what he writes. Look at verse, verse 2 of chapter 1. He says, Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. And so this is the first thing that Solomon says, the first thing that he learned from his life, from, from his experience, all that he's gone through. And he says, all is meaningless. And isn't this like a very uplifting way to start a sermon? Merry Christmas. Everything's meaningless. And he says, everything is meaningless. And now, all right, so we know that some things are totally meaningless. They have no point. They have no purpose. Like mosquitoes, okay? Tell me a purpose that mosquitoes have. They have no purpose. Um, maybe like a necktie. I mean, what's the purpose of a necktie? I mean, maybe it's to cover buttons, I guess. But like really, what, what's the purpose of it? You know, so Solomon even takes it further. He says, everything is meaningless. Above and beyond mosquitoes and neckties. And so Solomon, really? Everything? Yeah, Everything. Well, what about wisdom? And he says, meaningless. What about money? Meaningless. What about sports? Meaningless. What about work? Meaningless. He says, all is meaningless and a chasing after wind. That's what verse 14 says, if you want to look there. It says, I have seen all the things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless, a chasing after the wind. So he says, everything is meaningless. If you want to look forward, let's, let's flip to chapter 3 very quickly. Chapter 3, verse 11. Look at what, what else Solomon says. He says, he has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the hearts of men, yet they cannot fathom what God has done from beginning to end. And so we're not going to take a lot of time on that verse because there's a lot in there. But I just want to focus on the one sentence that he says. He has also set eternity in the hearts of men. Do you know that this is what God has done? That our hearts are craving for eternity, something eternal? This is what Solomon is craving. This is what he's going after. This is what he's desiring. 
So then why would Solomon then say that everything is meaningless and everything is a chasing after the wind? Why does he say that? I mean, don't you just want to give him a hug? Like, Solomon, everything is not meaningless. Life does have some meaning. I mean, and so what we're going to see here is Solomon is going to use his position. He's going to use his influence and he's going to use his authority to test and see what the meaning of life is. So he's going to find, try and find meaning in three different areas. So he's going to try and find it in pleasure, in wisdom, and then in work. And so these, these are three areas today that we look to for meaning. I mean, I think this is speaking in some ways to New England. And so the first thing that we're going to see is Solomon's search for meaning in pleasure. So let's look at chapter 2, verse 1. He says, I thought in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. But that also proved to be meaningless. Laughter, I said, is foolish. And what does pleasure accomplish? I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly. My mind still guiding me with wisdom. I wanted to see what was worthwhile for men to do under heaven during the few days of their lives. And so Solomon will now give his life to pleasure and living in pleasure. So what does he do? He brings in the best wine, the best drink, the best food, you know, he hires the funniest people on the planet. You know, he'll hire, you know, Daniel Tosh, Steve Carell, the redneck guys, which I don't really think are funny, but people think are funny. He hires them all, has these beautiful parties with great decorations, with food, with people. You know, his, the history books say that Solomon's parties had fifteen to 20,000 people. So multiply our congregation by, I don't know how many, math on the spot is never good, And so they must have been epic parties. I mean, imagine a party with 15,000 people. That's like the town of, you know, Hull or Hingham. I don't know population either. That's another thing not to, to, to do on the spot either. And so while Solomon is doing all of this, he's keeping his mind with him. He's being intentional about what he's doing and how he's living. He's keeping his mind with him. He's keeping his wisdom with him. He's saying, okay, is this... Searching for meaning and pleasure. Is this the meaning of life? That's what he's doing when he's having these parties. And so what happens is this. It all gets old. You know, staying up late, waking up late, the drunken stories, the funny jokes just become old and tired. And he's looking for pleasure and he can't find it. And so what's, what's underneath looking for pleasure. Like, why is Solomon doing that? And so I think it's, you know, this search for pleasure, it comes from, you know, this, this longing for a new experience, a new feeling, a new thrill, a new excitement. And so Solomon is searching for that feeling constantly. And so look at verse uh, 8 of chapter 1. Look at what he's going to say. He speaks to this. Verse 8 of chapter 1, it says, All things are wearisome, more than one can say. The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear its fill of hearing. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. 
Is there anything of which one can say, look, this is something new. It was here already long ago. It was here before our time. And so Solomon is saying, look, you're striving for this satisfaction in something. And what he's saying here is that it's never going to come. Your eyes are always going to be seeing. Your ears are always going to be hearing. You're never going to be satisfied. You're never going to be fulfilled in searching for things to fill that. Remember what he said in chapter 3, verse 11. He said that our hearts are made for eternity. So what we do is we try and fill our hearts with something temporary that are not meant to satisfy that eternal hole, that eternal gap. And so Solomon is, is essentially saying that we get in this circular rut of trying to fulfill our hearts and fulfill our lives with things that aren't meant to satisfy. This is what verse 5 says. Look at what verse 5 of chapter 1. It says, The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and it turns to the north. Round and round it goes, ever turning on its course. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, there they return again. And so, do you see what he's describing there? He's describing the sea that flows and is constantly going and it's never full. He's talking about the world spinning on its circuits and it just keeps going around and around. And so what he's describing is this, that our life can be like running on a treadmill. I mean, how many of you have run on a treadmill before? I think probably a lot of us. What happens when you're running, running on a treadmill? You're running, but you're not going anywhere, and you end up tired, which is why no one likes treadmills. <laughs> and so this is what Solomon is saying life is like. He's saying life is like you're running on a treadmill, and you're striving, and you're running and running and running, looking for things that will fill that, that eternal hole in your heart. And they never do. They won't. They weren't intended to. And so let me, let me give you an example of this. So we're, we're getting near to Christmas. Okay? And, you know, I love Christmas with all, with, with just like everybody else does. Um, but tell me if you've felt this before. You know, we're a couple weeks out of Christmas, so you're, you know, you're online. You're looking at websites for, you know, friends and family of gifts of what you want to get them. You don't really know what to get them. Then you go through the awkward, well, if they get me this, then I need to get them something better and all that, that whole awkward thing, you know. And um, if, you've, if you feel this, this Christmas, you know, season, you know, it, it's just striving after wind, you know, because, like, what, what's going to happen on Christmas Day? It happens to me almost every year. You know, you open up all your presents, and then you're left at the last present, and you open it, and it's like, oh, that was it? And it's just like you're left striving. You want more. And that's what Solomon is getting at. And I think that we've all been through that at some point. And this is not to ruin Christmas because I love it. But, you know, we're, we're going through that, that feeling, you know, that, that new thrill that we want that present that's going to fulfill us. And then it never does. And that's the thing with, like, commercials. Like, like you know, this, this whole month we're going to be bombarded with commercials saying, you need this product to make you feel good so that you could have a full life. And it, it won't. It won't at all. Let me, let me give you an example. Um, so this example is for high schoolers. But do any of you have a PlayStation? You can raise your hand if you want. Maybe you don't want to admit it, but okay. All right, no one's raising their hand, so it's fine. 
Um, all right, I wanted a PlayStation, okay? And not, not a PlayStation 3. I'm talking like original PlayStation. Okay, I wanted one so badly. I wanted one so bad. And then um, eventually I saved up enough money, and, uh, and, you know, I worked hard to save that money. And then I got it. I played it. And do you know where this PlayStation is right now? I have no idea. I mean, it's, it's gone. Like, it's, it's gone forever. And, and all that striving that I wanted for that PlayStation, it's meaningless. It's gone. And if, if there are kids in the room, I don't want to ruin Christmas for you, but the presents that you get right now, you're not going to have when you're, you know, 25. Probably not. Unless it's, you know, I don't know, like jewelry or something, whatever. Um, but what Jesus says is this. He says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And it's, it's so weird how sometimes we get in this, in this stage where we revert back to our inner, like, two-year-old. You know, have you seen a two-year-old that just screams, like, this is mine, this is mine, this is mine. And you ask, hey, can I have that? No, you can't have that. It's like, you're two. What, what do you want, like, that, you know, plane for or whatever? Just let me see it. You know, and we revert back to this. And so it's, it's really interesting how Solomon is saying that that search for meaning and pleasure, that search for meaning in material possessions, aren't going to satisfy you. They weren't intended to satisfy you because the only thing that can satisfy you is something eternal. And so Solomon from here says, okay, this, this searching for meaning and pleasure through parties and, and um, you know, living lavishly and having a lot of possessions, that didn't fulfill me. And so what does he say? He says, okay, well, maybe, maybe from here, maybe having a nice house, having a nice kingdom will be the pleasure that I need to fulfill me, to satisfy me. And we see this in chapter 2, verse 4. Look at what he says. He says, I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. And so what does he do? He, he makes all these great works. He makes his temple, and his temple took seven years to build. You know, it had gold and silver and precious stones and was beautiful. You know, then he built his his house, and his house took 14 years to build. He had housing for all of his 700 wives. And so Solomon knows what it means to go through housing renovations, and so he went through all of this, and he said, okay, maybe, maybe this house, having this great kingdom, having all these great works, he built forests, he built national parks. He said, maybe if I go there and get away from society, get away from life, that will give me pleasure. And he looks on it and says, it doesn't work. And so he says, okay, maybe since having this kingdom, you know, doesn't give me satisfaction like I thought it was, well, maybe now, you know, living in this kingdom, living in luxury, will give me satisfaction. This is what he tries in verse 7 of chapter 2. He says, I bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed gold and silver for myself 
and the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired men and women singers and harem as well, the delights of the heart of man. And so what he does is, he now brings in all these things. He's trying to amass gold and silver and you know, herds and livestock and people and possessions. And it's not going to work. He says, okay, I'm going to live in luxury. I'm going to get all this stuff. It's going to fulfill me. It's going to satisfy me. And it doesn't. It doesn't. You know, he says, okay, I'm going to be Billy Madison. I'm going to live in luxury. If you don't get that reference, it's okay. It's probably a good thing you don't know who Billy Madison is. I'm going to live with my many possessions. I'm going to get massages. I'm going to get manicures. I'm going to get pedicures. I'm going to wear silk everything. I'm going to, you know, just live, have every luxurious thing of the time. And it doesn't work. He's still left longing for something more. He becomes incredibly popular because of this lifestyle. This is what verse 9 says. It says, I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. In all this, my wisdom stayed with me. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my work. And this was the reward for my labor. Yet, when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. And so Solomon becomes greater than any other person in Jerusalem because of his lifestyle, because of what he's doing. And so what does he say here? You know, he has his wisdom during all of this. He denied his heart nothing. He went after, you know, food, drink, sex, money, possessions. He denied himself nothing, and he finds that it's striving after the wind. It's all meaningless. And so what's, what's going on here with Solomon? You know, what is, what is he looking for? What is he striving after? Why does he keep looking for things to fill him? And I think it's, it's something that God has given us. God's given us a desire for eternal things, which is what Ecclesiastes 3.11 is saying. God has given us this desire for, you know, an eternal thing to come in outside of us and change us. And so Solomon is looking for this peace. He's looking for that rest. He's looking for that acceptance from God. In the Old Testament, this is called shalom, the perfect peace of God, the rest of God. This is what Solomon is striving after, and he can't find it in anything. He can't find it in any possession. And so he's striving for this. And because of sin, the world is corrupt, and our hearts are now corrupt. And we look for peace, and we look for rest, and we look for satisfaction in toys and in stuff, and they don't satisfy. We must go to God. You know, a theologian, he gives a great definition of sin. This is what he says. He says, Sin is, in despair, not wanting to be oneself before God. Sin is not wanting to be oneself before God. And so what he's saying there is that sin is building your identity, your sum total of who you are, on anything other than God. That's sin. This is the DNA of sin. And so what Solomon is showing us is this, that when you place your identity on something other than God, 
it will break because it can't hold the weight of the hope that you're putting on that thing. So like when you take a good thing, like you know, having nice possessions, having a nice house, it's a good thing. But if you take that good thing and make it an ultimate thing, it's a bad thing because it can't fill, fulfill you the way that, that, God is, that God can. And so teenagers, me and you, we all need to hear this. Because when we take something and make it, and make you know, our whole identity and our whole life about that one thing, it's going to crush us. And it's going to crush other people around us. Let me give an example. So, you know, family relationships are the closest relationships that we have on this side of eternity. And so, you know, let's say, you know, you're a husband, you're a wife, you're a father, you're a mother, you're a son or daughter. You know, if you place your hope and place your identity on your role as that, when your family, you know, essentially fails you because they will because we're sinful, you're going to be crushed because you're looking for your family's approval and not for God's approval. And so this is what happens because, you know, we're looking for temporary things to fill that eternal hole. And people can't fill that. Nobody can fill that. And if you try to have somebody fill that, you're going to end up in despair. And so all that Solomon did in finding meaning and pleasure was striving after wind. You remember Solomon had, had 700 wives because he did that. He tried to find you know, his identity and meaning in, in what other people thought of him. And when that other person didn't reciprocate it, he just found a new one. I mean, how do you end up with 700 wives? I mean, you, you have to go through all these difficult situations, different things that happen, and Solomon was striving for that. Man, don't you just hear his heart in pain and broke, brokenness as he's writing this? And so he takes a step back. He sees that it's all futile. You know, he ran out of fantasies. He ran out of material things. He had everything. He had all these works. He had all this money. He had all sex. He had all this partying. He had all this pleasure. And he's still broken and empty because it can't fill that shalom-shaped hole in your heart. Only God can fill that. And so Solomon, he sought meaning and pleasure, and he tried having these great parties with great food, with great drink. He tried having a nice house and a nice kingdom. He tried living in luxury and living in pleasure. And this is what he concludes. He concludes this, that a godless life pursuing pleasure is meaningless. And you know, has anything changed? I mean, we all want to live in luxury. We all want to have a perfect house with a white picket fence. We want to be famous. We want to be liked. We want to be approved. We want to live in pleasure. We want to enjoy life. And Solomon is here to tell us, when you place your identity, who you are on those things, it's meaningless. It's chasing after wind. And don't you, don't you like that imagery, chasing after wind? He says that in verse 14 of chapter 1. Chasing after wind. How many of you have seen a, a dog chase his tail? I think all of us have. You know, you see a dog chasing his tail. The dog is smarter than, than us because the dog actually sees its own tail. But if you, if you can recall, like, what the dog does when it finally gets its tail, what does it do? It chews on it for, like, 
you know, 20 seconds or whatever. You know, it gets old very quickly, and then it does whatever dogs do. And then, like, five minutes later, it's back again chasing its own tail. And, like, the dog is smarter than us. The dog is smarter than Solomon because Solomon can't even see the wind that he's chasing. And so now, instead of living lavishly, he says, okay, that didn't work. It didn't satisfy. It didn't fulfill. Pleasure didn't, didn't make me full. Now I'm going to live wisely. I'm going to essentially turn a 180 and live totally differently. I'm going to live morally, live uprightly, and I'm going to pursue wisdom and learning. And so this is what Solomon does. He devotes himself to wisdom and learning. And we see that in chapter 2, verse 12 through 17. It says, Then I turn my thoughts to consider wisdom, and also madness and folly. What more can the king's successor do than what has already been done? I saw that wisdom is better than folly, just as light is better than darkness. The wise man has eyes in his head while the fool walks in the darkness. But I came to realize that both the same fate overtakes them both. Then I thought in my heart, the fate of the fool will overtake me also. What then do I gain by being wise? I said in my heart, this too is meaningless. For the wise man like the fool will not long be remembered. In the days to come, both will be forgotten. Like the fool, the wise man too must die. So I hated life because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it is meaningless, a chasing after wind. And so Solomon is now trying to find this this search for meaning and wisdom. And Solomon's pursuit failed for pleasure. So now he says, okay, wisdom is where it's going to be. This is what's going to fulfill me. I'm going to keep my eyes in my head, which is always a good thing. I'm going to be learned. I'm going to be wise. I'm going to live differently. This is something he talks about earlier in chapter 1, verse 12. Look at what he says. I, the teacher, was king over Israel and Jerusalem. I devoted myself to study, to explore by wisdom all that is done under heaven. What a heavy burden God has laid on men. I have seen all the things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless, a chasing after the wind. What is twisted cannot be straightened. What is lacking cannot be counted. I thought to myself, look, I have grown and increased in wisdom more than anyone who has ruled over Jerusalem before me. I have experienced much of wisdom and knowledge. Then I applied myself to the understanding of wisdom and also of madness and folly. But I learned that this too is chasing after the wind. For with much wisdom comes much sorrow, the more knowledge, the more grief. And so Solomon's new pursuit is wisdom. And if you're familiar with the Bible, Solomon took over um, as king by, from King David. David was his father. And so when Solomon took over, God asked Solomon, he says, okay, Solomon, I'll give you anything in the world that you can have. And what's it that Solomon asked for? Solomon asked for wisdom. And so God makes Solomon the wisest man in the world. And what this verse is showing us is that this is how Solomon became the wisest man in the world. He devoted himself to study. He devoted himself to wisdom. He devoted himself to learning, to striving after, after this knowledge. And so what, did, what does Solomon find after all this pursuit of learning and knowledge and study? Look at what verse 18 says in chapter 1. 
He says, okay, when there's more wisdom, there's more sorrow. When there's more knowledge, there's more grief. And so essentially what's happened is this. All of Solomon's studying, his intellectual ascent, has caused him to see that it's meaningless. It's caused him to see that now, you know, the end for both living in folly, like living in partying, living in that whole lifestyle for pleasure, and living in wisdom is the same. Both men who live in folly and men who live in wisdom will will die. That's what chapter 2, verse 16 says. The wise man will be like the fool, will not be long remembered. In days to come, both will be forgotten. Like the fool, the wise man too must die. And so Solomon sees that death will come to all of us. So as wisdom is a great pursuit to follow, it won't satisfy. It only points you to the end game. The end game is death. We will all die because of sin. And so Solomon's response is this. He hates his life. Don't you feel this pain that he's going through? He said, so I hated life. I mean, he knows, he knows that he's going to die, and he knows that there's nothing he can do about it. I mean, he's stuck in this. He's stuck on the treadmill. He says, okay, pleasure doesn't work. Wisdom doesn't work. And I want to die someday. What, what do I do with this? I mean, his, his desires in this moment are wrong. He's seeking for temporary things to fill his life, and they won't. He's still on that treadmill, striving, running, running, running. And so he finds his desires not being satisfied in this life. And C.S. Lewis talks about this. He, says, he writes a good quote. He says, um, If I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy... The only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. I mean, this is, this is so true. We, we have been made for another world. This is what Solomon is seeing. He's seeing that the end of wisdom is death. That Solomon is seeing now that he was made for another world. And so having our desires placed on wisdom and intelligence will not satisfy. But you know, has anything changed I mean, we're in New England. New England has some of the best colleges and universities in the world. You know, we all strive to know more and more and more, to grow in wisdom, to grow in learning, to grow in intelligence. But you know, Solomon is telling us that it's not going to satisfy, and that learning and wisdom will point you to what he's already come to find out, that a godless life pursuing wisdom is meaningless. And so Solomon has now attempted to find meaning of life in pleasure and in wisdom, and they don't satisfy. And so now he turns to the third piece. He says, okay, these two things don't work. Maybe finding meaning of life is in work. Let's look at verse uh, 18 of chapter 2. He says, I hated all the things I had told for under the sun, because I must leave them to the one who comes after me, And who knows whether he will be a wise man or a fool, yet he will have control over all the work into which I have poured my effort and skill under the sun. This too is meaningless. So my heart began to despair over all my toilsome labor under the sun. For a man may do his work with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, and then he must leave all he owns to someone who has not worked for it, 
This too is meaningless and a great misfortune. What does a man get for all the toil and anxious striving with, with which he labors under the sun? All his days his work is pain and grief. Even at night his mind does not rest. This too is meaningless. And so for all he's done, he says, okay, if all that is vanity, if all that is meaningless, okay, I'm going to give my life to work. I'm going to strive for meaning in what I do. And Solomon is great at what he does. With great effort, skill, and wisdom, and knowledge, he's able to prosper this kingdom and amass this large kingdom. He's very gifted at what he does. And so what happens here is he, he realizes that this is meaningless. This is not what he was intended to do. And so if you're in this room and, and you're finding your meaning in work, that's not a good thing. You know, if you're a disciple of Christ, your identity is not in what you do as a profession, but your identity is in whose you are as a believer in Jesus. It's called union with Christ. We're united with Christ in his death and in his resurrection. We're a new creation in Christ. And so our identity is now found in him, not in what we do. So um, a friend told me the story about someone he knew that was striving for Olympic gold. In, uh, I think it was rifle shooting. And this person had worked for 25 years striving to get to the top. And you know what happened? This person finally got there and they were depressed because they realized that their Olympic gold, all they were striving for is a piece of metal. And it doesn't change anything internally. This is what Tom Brady found. He's at the peak of his career and he's saying, is there something more than this? And you know, there's nothing wrong with work. God has called us to work. But when it becomes your identity, who you are, it's not a good thing. And you know, here in New England, you know, we're, we work hard. You know, Boston traffic, I think, is one example of that. And if you go through that, I apologize. I'm sorry, because it's awful. I would never want to do that. But, you, you know, here in New England, we work hard. We're devoted to work. We know that work is difficult. And so what, what does the guy who works really hard in his life, what does he get? Look at verse 22. He gets grief, pain, and no rest. And how many of you, if you're honest, you're like this guy that Solomon is describing, that you think about your work at night on your bed as you're sleeping? You know, Solomon knows that we're going to work hard by the sweat of our brow. There's not going to be rest in work. It's going to be difficult. It's going to be hard. And so work, it brings, it brings pain and grief and restlessness. And Solomon is finding this out. And so this is what he concludes. That a godless life pursuing work is meaningless. Because all the things that Solomon pursued, that Solomon followed after, they all failed him. You know, whether it's pleasure, whether it's wisdom, whether it's work, it all failed him. And so, what do we do with this? What's the meaning of life? You know, are we like Tom Brady that there's got to be more than this? And you know, so there is meaning in life. I'll tell you that for sure. There is meaning in life. And we see this here in, in chapter uh, 2, verse 24. Look at it. He says, A man can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in his work. This too, I see, is from the hand of God. 
For without him, who can eat or find enjoyment? So here's, here's the key to life. Apart from God, who can find enjoyment? Apart from God, who can find meaning? Apart from God, who can find satisfaction in this life? You know, it's like what Solomon is saying in Ecclesiastes 3.11. This eternal hole in your heart is full when you fill it with God. You know, only God can fill the shalom-shaped hole, that chasm in your heart. Only God is big enough. The eternal God of the universe comes down as a baby in Christmas, takes on human flesh, dies the death that we should have, and gives us new life. This is why there's satisfaction in life, because Jesus has come. And so only through the gift of God and Jesus Christ do we have eternal enjoyment of God. You know, we live in the gifts of God, family, friends, food, drink. It's called common grace. We live in those gifts. But there's a special gift, a special grace that comes to us, to us who believe. We get eternal, eternal enjoyment in God by placing our faith in him. And so we realize that now all things have come from God. So our work, wisdom, and pleasure now make sense because only in Jesus Christ do all those things you know, are, are they like reordered? You know, Jesus comes in and changes our hearts totally and completely. And now everything makes sense because our world orbits around Jesus now. It doesn't orbit around ourself and what we want to do. It orbits around our Savior and our God. And so what's our purpose? The Westminster Confession, it says, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And so only, only when we are enjoying God can we find true delight in this world. And so what Solomon is saying is this. In God there's meaning. In God there's life. In God there's enjoyment. And why is that? It's because of Jesus Christ. It's because he's ransomed us. He's rescued us. He's saved us. And he's redeemed us. He's gotten us off that treadmill by breaking the circuit, by changing all of human history. So now our life has meaning. We've been ransomed from this meaningless life. We've been brought to God by the death and resurrection of Jesus. Jesus has defeated death so that we could have eternal enjoyment and joy in him. And so what do we do with this message we glorify God and we enjoy him forever. You know, the early church father said that um, God has made us for himself and our hearts are restless until they rest in God. And I pray today, whether you're a new believer, seasoned believer, or a non-Christian, I pray today that you would find your rest in God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you, we praise you for how great you are. We thank you that you give us life and breath and everything. We thank you for the gifts that you give us, God. Lord, I pray during this Christmas season that we would be able to reorient our lives around you and your goodness and your greatness and your sovereignty. 
Lord, I pray that we would find our rest and satisfaction in Christ alone. Lord, we love you. Help us love you more. It's all for your glory that we're here. It's for your glory that we live. Lord, I pray that we would glorify you and enjoy you forever. It's for your beautiful name we pray. Amen.